Welcome, everyone, to episode 241 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we've reached the culmination of the Anderson Countdown, where we watched and discussed all of Wes Anderson's filmography with a review of his new 2023 release, Asteroid City. With me today, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey, as well as our Countdown special guest, Jay Habib. Scott, you first. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Scott. Um, it was a pleasure to see this movie um, on Thursday night, yes, Thursday night, on opening night here. Here, of course, you you guys have had it for a long time, uh, as oh, is tradition. As is tradition. I'm not. I'm just kidding. But um, it was it was fun. I went to the indie theater. It was sold out. They had two sold out screenings that night. Both of them were sold out. People were dressed up. The, I mentioned to you guys the cashier was dressed up as Susie from um, from Moonrise Kingdom. So. It was a very festive, celebratory thing, which was cool because it's a Wes Anderson movie. You know, you don't really see that type of stuff going on unless it's like a Marvel movie and not even for Marvel movies anymore. So um, I I feel like I would like to go see more movies on premiere. Like if I'm seeing the premiere of something, like see it at the indie theater because um, the vibes were good. And even if I have to pay, you know, money as opposed to going to the AMC, it was was worth it. Sure. I mean, it's a it's a it's a different thing. And I understand that. But it's the same reason why I would go and see the, you know, the New York Film Festival, like at the New York film at the New York Film Festival, as opposed to waiting one week or three weeks like Tar last year came out like three weeks after the New York Film Festival. But I was like, I'm going to go see this film at the festival. You know, it's it's, I know it's a little bit different, but I think it's a similar concept, a similar vibe for why you'd want to do that. And it makes a lot of sense. My question is, is was the cashier also 13? No. No, she okay. was. She was because otherwise, I'm going to be filing a labor complaint with the board for North Carolina. <laughs> I think because that seems a bit off. That would have been concerning. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe it would have fit the vibe of Moonrise Kingdom. I don't know. Jay, sure, though, yeah. haven't heard you speak yet. How are you doing today? Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. I'm doing well. I uh, had a bit of a snafu with my AMC A list today. I don't know if this is the venue, time, or place to talk about it, but I would say like half an hour before i was supposed to see a movie i tried to switch it like essentially cancel this one and go see it at a different theater and i was unable to do that um and it ended up like docking me the reservation and i was really stressed out about it for an hour until it let me make a new reservation after my initial time was supposed to end and it actually then ended up like retrofitting like my first movie of the week was not the one o'clock showing i was supposed to have it was the three this is i don't know I'm so confused what actually happened. You canceled a movie ticket and it didn't let you rebook a movie ticket? Yeah, I had... Uh, it said I was unable to make any more A-list this week. Because I have two already booked and then I had one for today, which I canceled and tried to do. I was able to do it in the end, but it took like an hour. I did I did see some people tweeting about, oh, this is the struggle of A-list people right now. I guess if you live in like New York or LA or something, like where all three of their reservations are currently like taken up by like dead reckoning uh barbie and oppenheimer like you have but my all my reservations are only in. this week like that yeah. that's why i played myself because i saw no hard feelings today i'm gonna rewatch spider verse uh for the first time in dolby tomorrow and then indiana jones at the end of the week so what have you guys done to me like i never <laughs> see like three movies in like six months in the theaters and we still gotta get those numbers up those are rookie numbers. Those are rookie numbers. But look, they're less rookie than they used to be, Jay, and we're here for it. Uh, three, look, three I mean, in a week is the max I can do without paying more, right? Like, 
brother, it's okay. We can we can get you going to the indie theaters here. You got the film forum, got the IFC center. There's so all many right, more theaters right, to right. explore. So many rep screenings. <laughs> yeah, get some rep screenings going. That's for sure. Like, look, Studio Ghibli films or yeah, Ghibli films coming out in IFC center over the next month. You can go watch them all. You'll have in to the theater on the big screen. You'll have you'll have to give me a list. Are you taking time off to, to tomorrow to go see a Spider-Verse in Dolby? Or are they showing it in the evening? They're showing it in the evening. I'd have been so sick if you took time off to go see Spider-Verse. <laughs> no. <laughs> like two weeks later. <laughs> Alas, it's only nah. in Dolby today, baby. We gotta go. <laughs> nah, it's, it's the last week of the quarter, man. Can't do that. Well, we don't need to get too much more inside baseball probably on this, but we do need to get inside baseball on Asteroid City because that is the meat of today's episode, as I already mentioned. It's written and directed by Wes Anderson, of course. Asteroid City is also a 1950s set period comedy drama that interweaves a narrative twist to its structure. Asteroid City is the title of the play, or I guess the TV, the televised TV play, as I was told right before the podcast started, uh, performed in cinematic widescreen format in the film, while its creation and original staging is also shown in black and white Academy ratio. Conrad Earp, played by Ed Norton, is the creator and writer of Asteroid City, who draws further inspiration for his main character when he meets Jones Hall, played by Jason Schwartzman, before he and Earp may have a romantic involvement. Earp furiously writes the play from there, sometimes with the help of an acting class he's a part of, which he then uses to cast the play. Earp sets his work in the fictional western town of Asteroid City, the host of a junior stargazer convention honoring innovative and inventive young men and women interested in furthering the research of astronomy. Augie Steenbeck, also played by Jason Schwartzman in the play Asteroid City, arrives early to the conference with his honoree son Woodrow, played by Jake Ryan, and three small daughters. It is at this point, however, that the Steenbeck family car breaks down for good, requiring Augie to phone his recently deceased wife's father-in-law, Stanley, played by Tom Hanks, to request his help watching the children and then eventually driving the family to their final destination of Stanley's home. Other convention attendees begin, attendees begin to arrive, including a mother-daughter pairing, a world-weary TV actress named Midge, played by Scarlett Johansson, and junior stargazer honoree Dina, played by Grace Edwards. Augie and Woodrow are quickly smitten and fall in love uh, with the tear over the course of the play, all the while, a rich ensemble of other characters converge on the titular asteroid city for the convention. Meanwhile, a more netted narrative is, of course, taking place and explored as the play's creation comes together, exploring themes of grief and loss, connection and alienation, and almost inevitably, youthful coming of age. Guys, I'll stop there so that we can start to discuss. Scott, we'll start with you first. We've spent a lot of time thinking and talking about Wes Anderson's filmography, plots, themes, casts, etc. And I think you maybe even more so than Jay and I have really vibed with the later Uber Wes, with which I think three of his most recent four films being your top three of the Wes Anderson countdown, if I remember correctly. So what did you think of Asteroid City? Did it live up to the hype? Did it continue the auteur's hot streak and ability to really connect with you as a viewer? And if so, what made this particular film a period sci-fi piece with Wes's sensibilities so special? It does continue the hot streak. I'm reminded of something that a uh, film critic, uh, Nathan Rabin, said a long time ago when he was doing a series on Richard Linklater where he he reviewed Slacker and he said, now this is where the the awesome part of Linklater's filmography begins. And of course, Slacker was his first film ever, that being the joke. And that's how I feel about Wes Anderson at this point. We can look at Bottle Rocket, we can say, this is where the awesome part of his filmography begins and the awesome part is still going on and it's still going on through asteroid city he you know there's a repeated line in this movie that 
Oh, my pictures always come out is something that Jason Schwartzman's character says. And Wes Anderson's pictures always come out, right? He, he just keeps bringing the bangers every time. Um, and Asteroid City is no exception. I loved this movie. Um, I think it, you know, it, I want to go watch it again. I'm probably going to go watch it again in the next day or two. But it has a, a high chance to, you know, ascend pretty high on my Wes Anderson list. Um, we did our list last time out in the retrospective. But um, I think it's going to have a very high place there. I just really enjoyed everything that this movie was going for. I think it's one of his most profound and like poignant movies in a way um it is speaking in some ways to our current moment and you know there are some like vague moments of uh covid anxiety sort of things that you know that happen um with the central event in this film um but also it's a lot about just the the nature of art and the you know creation of art um, even more so than like the French Dispatch was. I mean, that, he was flirted with that in the French Dispatch, but I think this movie is even more, you know, the meta layers that you're talking about, I think, it, are getting at it because we're not just seeing what's going on in the play in Asteroid City. We're also seeing what the act, the actors, the writer, the director, everyone trying to put on this production and everyone struggling through their careers, their lives to understand the point of everything, right? Like it's a very existential movie, um, which may make it sound um, daunting or hard to access, um, but it still has all of the, you know, Wes Anderson, it, the intoxicating Wes Anderson stuff that you know and love. Um, it's beautifully shot by Robert Yeoman. Um, you know, it's, it's a much more um, stripped down, I guess, visually filmed than, um, like the French Dispatch was, for example, um, where you had so much going on in that sort of, you know, dollhouse of a movie. Here you have, um, you know, it's it's a it's a single town, you know, it's an old west town. Sure, he's doing some things that maybe he hasn't quite done before. We're seeing things that we haven't quite seen before in a Wes Anderson movie. But it's scaled back a little bit, and we've heard that he's, you know, done that a lot to get films out quicker. He is releasing them quicker than he was earlier in his career. But he doesn't sacrifice any of the the craft or or quality in the visuals. Uh, it's it's a striking film to look at. It's so you know vibrant, colorful, um, all the things that so many modern movies are not nowadays. So I really appreciated that. It's and it's very funny. You know, it has that Wes Anderson sense of humor. Um, people were laughing throughout the movie in that theater I mentioned. I do think it maybe at times it verged on. You, like if you're on film Twitter, you'll see people complaining about how like, oh, you go to a, a screening at one of these theaters like the Film Forum or something like that in New York City, you know, these indie theaters and the people there like to like want to prove that they're in on on the joke and everything. So they're going to laugh at everything like very demonstrably. And there were times when I kind of felt like, OK, maybe this isn't like something we should be like falling out of our seats laughing about or whatever, because it is. You know, I'm not, I mean, yes, it's like kind of amusing what's going on here, but like, I don't think this is necessarily a joke, right? Um, he, Wes Anderson has always walked the line between, you know, the, the I experienced that firsthand. And the comedic. Maybe I was yeah. that guy uh, in the Grand Budapest Hotel. 
True. That is true. Uh, but again, I think that was a clear joke, but um, that was a different type of thing. That was like dark humor. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, so it, it's a very funny movie. I mean, there's a lot of intentional gags and stuff in the movie. Like it's, it's quite goofy and silly at times, which I enjoyed. Um, and it has that ensemble cast, right? That it, it, the Wes Anderson ensemble just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Like we have new people added here. We have Tom Hanks. We have Steve Carell. We have, you know, Maya Hall, Cope Davis. Um, we have just a lot of people who haven't appeared in Wes Anderson films before. In addition to old favorites like Scarlett, or like uh, Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson was in Isle of Dogs, but um, Jeffrey Wright, um, you know, the list goes on. The, a lot of the regulars are here. You mentioned Ed Norton, Adrian Brody, uh, and the like, but um it's just a delight. It's a delight, but also it gave me a lot to think about. And I mean, as much as any Wes Anderson film has given me to think about. I mean, you know, Moonrise Kingdom, for example, like, again, it's one of my favorites. It's a lovely film. I just enjoy watching the, you know, the story play out, the characters, whatever. At the end, I'm like, well, it wasn't that lovely or whatever. And then I go on my go about my day. And, you know, sure, it's a it's a very rewatchable and wonderful film. But this this is a movie that I've been thinking about. And, thinking about and you know really tossing around some of the questions i think it's asking in my head um long afterwards and i'm not sure there's many other wes anderson films i can say that about so i think that's very much to its credit it speaks to why i want to see it again um and it speaks to why it's one of the strongest films for sure that has been released this year and i think we're still going to be talking about it to the end of the year at least i i will be yeah, I mean, I, I want to get to Jay here in a second, but I think one of the things that you said at the end there is something that has really struck me is that it's a film. Maybe when I walked out of the theater, I wasn't exactly sure immediately how I felt about the movie, but I knew that there was like there was definitely a lot there. And I think upon reflection, because now it's been, you know, it's been over a week since since I saw the film. I really do feel like more so than any of the other films and, and maybe even the French Dispatch is like the closest I think in this way, but like it is really a film where there is a lot more to dissect, I think, and reflect on. And, you know, we don't need to, to talk about the, the intricacies of the French dispatch, but I, I think it's an interesting now, I think to say trend in his films. Like we, we talked about how like Wes was like super jaded at the beginning. He became a little bit sentimental, like towards the middle and more recent films. And now I feel like he's this almost like reflective person not that he didn't have reflective elements in his other movies but it's something that's really struck me about this film and you know like one of the uh, the french dispatch i think is certainly trying to be a bit reflective if not um always successful uh you know your mileage may vary but jay what what do you think about about asteroid city do you share a lot of scott's praise for the film did you feel differently how did it strike you I'm going to contextualize first, uh, just in recap. You hated the film. I, All right, cool. We'll move on. <laughs> I can't even pretend. You guys have seen my, I, I assume you've seen my letterbox review by now, whereas usually I wait. But because I've seen this movie twice, um, once a week and a half ago uh, with you, Scott, and then I got to see it again a couple nights ago. I'm not even bragging. Like I, you know, you talk about how this, maybe along with the French Dispatch, gives you so much to dissect. Scott, if you remember, when we walked out of that first showing, like I didn't really say much because I, I feel like I really had to chew on this one more than any West movie I've seen thus far. Um, and that wasn't a bad thing per se, but it was, you know, it was almost as if I walked out and was like, wait, what was the play about? 
And I mean, I think that's, that's something that you literally said. You're like, I'm not sure there's much. Well, because maybe you didn't phrase it exactly like this, but the way that I had interpreted what you had said there was that like, you didn't actually think the play was really about much of anything. And you were like, asking me like, what did I think the play was about? And I'm like, well, I think it's like common West themes, like this, 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 this. And you're like, huh, okay. I wouldn't say it quite went like that, but I think I, I would say yeah. it teed you up to be like, all right, wait, t- talk to me. Cause yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm still thinking through this. Um, sure. And although I think now, again, this was the only one I've seen in a theater. Um, so, you know, having a group of people to like laugh, at, you know, at again, I, I thought you maybe could convince me this was one of the funnier, if not like the funniest West movie I've seen. But again, that might be because I had other people there to laugh with. I didn't feel like I had as many people in my theater that were trying to be in on the joke, except for maybe one guy at my second screening who, you know, gave you that very loud, like a ha ha ha, you know, when it doesn't really feel earned. Yeah, it's again, one of my I pet could... peeves. People do people do that at the New York Film Festival too. They're like, la- they're like laughing at stuff that's just like blatantly like not, it's like not funny and not supposed to be laughed at. I remember people just like could not stop laughing in Benedetta um, a couple years back, but uh, just like a, one of the strangest choices. But anyway, we don't have to get into that. It's like it's like a real thing, though, I feel like. And, and Wes's crowd can sometimes, I think, fall victim to that. Sure. Uh, I guess I, I saw that for the first time uh, during my second showing. But yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think after my second viewing, and I don't mean to keep harping on that Scott Harvey. I'm sorry, but it really <laughs> did take me. It really did take me two viewings to after my third viewing to come up with a score. <laughs> Honestly, there might be a third. Like, I really could go see this again, which is crazy oh, to yeah. me because I, I went into this thinking, I, I think with like middling to like, okay, this could be like good, but I I, I wasn't under the impression I was going to love it. Um, I think the only context I had going into it was one review that i read which basically said if you love wes you'll love this and if you don't it's not going to change your mind and i'm, I'm not saying i don't love wes but i don't Isn't think i love wes the, the, the most bland guy. generic review of an author from every wes anderson think, movie like <laughs> maybe it is I, I can't say i've read many but because of wes's very distinct filmmaking style to me it screamed okay like this is going to be a lot like stylistically speaking you know movies i've i've watched recently you know, which I've given like pretty good scores to, but only I would say like one of which I like loved, loved, right? So I didn't go into it thinking I would do that. And then I think Scott Hardy, maybe you sent me or like, you know, sent our group chat a text saying, oh, this one is broken up into acts, you know, as if to like play off the French dispatch, which I didn't particularly like. Um, I think this was obviously me, different, st- but let me stop you right there. I think sure. that's his other film. I think that's is that the Henry, Henry Sugar? Sugar movie, which oh, okay. we now know is going to be a short film, actually, because it's only going to be 37, 37 minutes, minutes on Netflix. But anyway, I, I don't enough. think I was saying that about Asteroid City, although Maybe, it is. It is broken up. Sure, sure. Um, it, no, it's broken up into scenes. I'll have you know. It's not yeah, broken yeah. up into acts. I, yes, sure. The series is a collection of scenes. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, I guess I conflated that in my mind. Um, but yeah, I ultimately you know i've come out of it like really loving it like i i don't even you know i'm I'm not exaggerating like i might see it a third time i'm not sure just given like you know time constraints but and a a list is just he jay's Jay's in his 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 hot movie summer right now well again i I have i have three reservations this week so if it's still showing next week you know i have a bit of next week's a bit of a down week before we get to mission impossible and oppenheimer and all that and barbie but yeah, I I think Scott, you know, you talked already a lot about, you know, the existential nature of the film. I also feel like it does a it gives you an interesting perspective on how different people handle grief and trauma. Um, you know, uh comparing Augie to his son, 
to his daughters, you know, who are, I think, all handling uh, the loss of uh, the mom of the family, like, so differently, um, you know, and I thought did a really good job of first, you know, kind of showing you that and then making a point or, like, you know, in pointing out how we can sometimes lose ourselves in that grief. You know, there's a conversation between Jason Schwartzman's character and Tom Hanks's character where Tom Hanks' character, you know, basically lets him know, like, you know, you're not the only one grieving here, um, which I thought was a really beautiful moment. So, you know, in addition to all the themes that Scott Harvey already mentioned, I just wanted to call that out too. Um, again, stylistically very much West-like, but I really do enjoy, you know, the symmetry, color palettes, et cetera. So all in all, like, you know, went, went in expecting, you know, to give it somewhere, but I mean, I don't, I don't want to get into scores yet, but I expected to give it like a pretty consistent score with some of the West, with most of the West films we've given it. And it's, you know, it came out ahead of that. Let me go ahead and warn you right now. At the end of the film, I'm not only going to ask for your score, I'm going to ask for your favorite scene or moment. So just to give you a heads up. <laughs> I have mine. I have mine. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Look, guys, you know, I'm so I feel like and I think you guys have sort of danced around this to somewhat even explicitly said this. I really do feel like I, I almost need like a second viewing of the film. Didn't have the chance to. I thought I might get to go see it this afternoon. Didn't work out uh, for a second time, but I really, yeah, I was sort of, I've been reflecting on the movie and going off some of the stuff that I started to say in response to what, to what Scott had said. I, I just feel like there's so much to digest. I think in particular with the sort of stuff that it threads in with the sort of meta-ness of it all around like the in-universe meta-ness of it, like the fact that you're getting the story about the creation of the play itself. I think that's really, for me, what adds in a lot of the really rich text that there's that that there is to digest and to really unpack. I think some of the most, I don't know, like almost like prescience to getting towards maybe the point that Scott was talking about aspect of the film really sits in the creation of the thing. And I think that, that is what Wes is indirectly interested in, in the French dispatch. I think that's what he's really interested, almost like self referentially to an extent in this film. And I think that, Whenever a creator, especially someone like Wes, who has a very particular style and format, and I think we've seen it in other filmmakers as well, really starts to almost turn the ca camera towards an exploration of, of his own style or his own filmmaking. I think that's really interesting. Again, I don't know if that's like 100% what's happening here, but I think he's starting to trend towards that direction. And I think that creates for really interesting material if you can turn that camera on yourself and be honest about what you're doing. And I think that maybe my opinion will change on second on the second viewing and whatnot. But I do think that he asks a lot of questions and not, and doesn't necessarily have the answers. And I think that's maybe the point, right? Like, I do think that's the point that there's not really answers to some of these themes and these questions that we're talking about here. But I think the fact that we haven't really talked too much yet about the actual sort of two, the second hand of the two hander of this sort of, you're seeing the actual play being performed, but then you're seeing sort of behind the curtain as well and how it's made. I think that's a huge part of why this film really is something that's going to you know, stick with me and is going to be worth talking about for a long period of time. Because I think just on the surface, the play is certainly has is interesting. A lot of themes, but like the play itself, like the asteroid city element of it being performed, like that is like your traditional Wes Anderson stuff. Like, of course, the rest of stuff's also in the style. But I think what actually elevates this material is the other stuff. And I think that's what makes it, you know, really, really interesting. I think it, it sort of hooks you with these pretty endearing characters. I think Jason Schwartzman and Scarlett Johansson are like pretty perfect in these roles. I feel like 
vindicated for my Jason Schwartzman pick um, on who would I take of Wes's regulars out of this. I mean, granted, I think he's, you know, he's the only one in this film. I think I don't think Bill Murray or Owen Wilson are in this. So maybe they can't defend themselves in this film, but I think he really stepped up to the plate here and, and hit a home run. He does have a dual role, but I really think that Augie character, there's just so much pathos, I think, in it. And and if you're not invested in what Augie is doing and his perspective and how things are developing for him, I think you're you're going to be out on the film pretty quickly, I think. And then Scarlett Johansson as this sort of she's almost like this sort of fleeting figure, like she's there. But is she ever is she really there? It kind of feels like at times um you know, not that she's necessarily aloof, because I think she is very in the moment with Augie's character. Uh, but but Midge is someone who has that kind of charisma and charm that maybe the most like star power, like the most like high powered stars have, and that they're able to make you feel really seen. And I think that's what happens in this film. But maybe the relationship isn't always as two way as it as it is maybe uh, initially made out to be. And I think that's like a really interesting you know, side note and an interesting sort of tangent to a lot of what this film is thinking about and exploring. Obviously it's one way to process like what is happening between Augie and Midge is, is one way that Augie is, is working through his own grief about the loss of his wife. But I also think it's maybe a broader comment on the feeling of like connection and belonging and, and creation even, right? Like this idea of like creating something can be fleeting. Like it's there for you. You think you've got it, but kind of like the nature of the end of the film and both the meta narrative and the end character narrative like it's not really there for you always it's not really always there for you at the end and what are you left with um sort of at the end of the doing of the thing i think it's something that's very hard to sort of unpack and yeah i just found this film like a really rich text i've said that multiple times already but i think it's one of the things that sticks out with me way more so i think scott's point about moonrise kingdom uh, frankly, I think that applies to almost all of Wes's movies. I don't really think there is a lot to unpack yeah. in a lot of them. And Moonrise Kingdom is maybe an easy example because it is very charming and very sort of rewatchable, as you were saying. But I think this is especially true. I, I remember watching The French Dispatch, and I know I've now rewatched the film. But I think on the podcast here, I told you I can't see myself rewatching that movie. Um, you know, that's not true of all Wes's work, but but I do think this is one where it almost it almost felt like it demanded a rewatch beyond just whether you wanted to rewatch it or not. It almost demands it. And the good news is, is that it's so enjoyable, I think, and, and easy on the eyes to consume and and to go along that, you know, you all, you want to rewatch it as well. So, yeah, m- maybe it's a superior Wes Anderson film for that. The fact that it gets sort of the both sides of the blade almost uh, to, to benefit. But if I had to call out one, and this will maybe transition our conversation towards the cast, if I had to call out one flaw that I think the film does have, and and I know that I don't I don't think this is a lazy criticism, but I, I do think that it's a bit distracting sometimes to have so many high profile actors that you're giving th- like 30 seconds to on the screen. And like you want to know more about that character, but you're not going to get more about that character. I think Adrian Brody is an example of it in this movie. Like I want to I want to get more, not just out of Adrian Brody, who is obviously a phenomenal actor that we talked a lot about him on the Anderson Countdown. But Schubert Green as like the director or person who's like running the, the TV show production, like it feels like there is a lot of of stuff that is introduced and not closed on. And some of that I'm sure is intentional. And some of that is just like, let me show you all I got. Like, like, let me show you just everything I've got behind the curtain here in terms of how I, Wes Anderson, separate from like what the movies be made, like what I've got, like I've got my actors, I've got all these interesting characters and I'm just going to throw it at you. And not all of it's going to be important because it can't be. It's an hour and 45 minute movie. 
And I, I, I found that a bit distracting in certain parts of this film. It's not something that I'd particularly felt before, but I, I do think that, frankly, in a more meaningful role, and I know that he has a, a big scene that Jay calls out, like, I thought Tom Hanks was kind of that way in this movie. I'm not going to lie. Like, I, I'm not sure that I'm totally dialed in on some of these more peripheral characters that aren't central. I think there's, because of the nature of the casting, wedded with the character that they're playing, I think it's easy to start demanding, like, you feel like you're demanding more out of some of these things and it's just not there. And, it, and I think ultimately it detracts from the experience. I think that's like the one negative that I have from the film so far that I've come out of it. I don't know if you guys share that or not, but it is something that struck me while I was watching the movie. I mean, I think I, I, I know where you're coming from. I think in the case of Brody's character, I mean, of course I always want to see more of him because I sure. just think he's, it is more than that but, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, there could be more. But I think that you still get the sense of he is just another person involved with this production who is kind of trying to find some sort of meaning within this play and coming up empty in a way because he's telling Jason Schwartzman's character that like he doesn't understand like Jason Schwartzman is confused about what he's supposed to be doing in this one scene basically what point he's trying to get across and Adrian Brody like kind of is just like figure it out for yourself i don't remember exactly what he says but um, just keep acting what he's saying yeah yeah his wife has left him he's like living on the set of the play right like he is he is searching for something here and maybe he's finding it or maybe he's not and i think that's kind of the same position that a lot of the characters are in they are trying to use this artistic medium to discover something about themselves and what they are doing in life that they can't otherwise and i just to add on to that it feels like you know that that's just one layer of character that's looking towards some sort of i don't want like i guess the catch-all term would be like authority figure like trying to get an answer like whether it's going to the director whether it's jason schwartzman going to the director saying like i don't understand what is the play about or if it's the characters in the play itself like you know looking to the cosmos for answers like ultimately like not getting them right like to me like it like you know the point about like maybe not getting enough of let's just say adrian brody's character like side like it feels like that's just like like another thing that's happening both in the play and outside the play of like you know i'm looking for answers and i'm ultimately not going to get them so to me it just felt like reflective of that and like it's it's okay that we don't get more of adrian brody in the in uh the movie like you know this is like a almost a weird comparison to make but almost in the same way like we don't get more of the alien right like we don't get more answers from him either like you know what what's up with you what's going on um you know how not alone are we so i don't know i to me like i just to point out that like specific thing like i to me like it made sense that we didn't see that much of him even though like i hear you on there are a lot of questions raised we don't get a lot of answers yeah, I'm not saying I don't understand why there's less of it. I'm just saying I think it's distracting. I think it, I think it detracts from the movie at that point. But one one thing that I will say, I think that the point that you guys are talking about at the end of the film, not to jump too far ahead because I, I do want to come back to it, but like, I think that's like kind of the crux of the movie, like this notion of of not being able to understand the roles you're playing in life and in the play is crucial, right? And the truth is, is that like at this point in the film. You know, Erp, Ed Norton's character, he's dead. Like, like, you can't ask him. Like, you just like you can't ask the alien why he's there. You can't ask the play's writer and creator 
why you're there, like what's going on. And you see this sort of like longing search for meaning in, in life and in the play. And it manifests itself in some strange ways at times. I think like the fact that he's like burning his hand on the, on like the, whatever the, the, the sandwich grass or yeah. hot plate. Yeah. The, the hot, was it just a hot plate? Yeah. Like the fact that he's burning his hand, like that, that feels like almost like fourth wall breaking. Right. Cause he's talking about like, I don't understand what I'm doing. That's not. There's other times when that happens too. Like when Brian sure. Cranston is just randomly there in the play, it's like, oh, oh I'm am not I not in this? To be here at this part, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think at times it makes sense. The other times it, it doesn't, but that's okay, right? Like I, you, you don't have to get it all. But yeah, again, I think that's part of the confusion, the not knowing, the like every the art and life are bleeding into each other, and like there's no sure. way to you know to know when and how that's going to happen. Yeah, for sure. Well, we're talking about Jason Schwartzman, both, you know, his character of Augie, as well as um, his character of Jones, where he plays the sort of the actor playing Augie. And I mean, I think we have to talk more about him and Scarlett Johansson. They're probably the two leads of the film. I talked about how I thought they really gave they both really gave outstanding different performances, almost this, um, you know, fleeting. I, I mentioned Scarlett Johansson as a sort of fleeting character. I'm, I'm missing the right word that I'm looking for, and I haven't found it yet. But it is this sort of figure that is elusive feels elusive i think to augie he's like trying to capture quite literally sometimes in photography this this person and is able to is trying to find something in that but uh yeah what did you guys think what did you guys think of these two performances jay why don't we start with you first this time jason schwartzman and scarlett johansson yeah i mean i thought they were pretty spectacular i don't think i could have loved this movie as much as i did without that I mean, I don't even know what else to say. They do a really spectacular job. Like, I know that sounds really reductive, but, you know, to, to I guess start with Jason Schwartzman, right? Like, just bringing that, like, crisp, dry, like, you know, quick line delivery to his scenes with his kids into, like, you know, talking to Mitch, even the way, you know, just, of course it came out. All my pictures come out. Like, just, I spot on line delivery, you know, so much so that I think when we, like, you know, you talking about you felt vindicated about your, pick from the end of the Anderson countdown. I'm not going to say it made me revisit mine, but it was like, Oh, like, you know, I, I didn't know your game. Like I, you know, respect. Uh, so just really, really appreciated him. Um, same with Scarlett Johansson. I mean, you know, just seeing these two people again, kind of like struggling with their own things and somewhat different, but intertwined ways. Uh, you know, I think Scarlett Johansson just like carries the weight of someone like, you know, I think she just plays that like Midge Campbell, character really well like this you know like larger than everyone else there uh actor who's like you know a bit amongst themselves like you know every time her name comes up in the large crowd like oh yeah mitch campbell mitch campbell like i think uh you know i i would say like i was familiar with her game and you know another solid performance to add to her log yeah they're like classic wes anderson protagonists i think in their own way of like their sort of being deadpan and emotionless, you know, of, of sorts to uh, suppress the the grief that is within them. They, they don't really know how to express what's really going on. I mean, we, we've seen this going back to, you know, Bill Murray and Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums. And I mean, this is, again, it's, it's kind of a classic Wes Anderson character trope, but it's played very well by the both of them. Like they have this strange sort of beguiling chemistry together. I think when they're in those scenes and just talking across the windows to each other and, um, you know, the dialogue is really well-written and um, just the way that they feed off of each other's 
particular particular energy i think you can you can you know keep watching that even though again they are not showing a lot of emotion which is something that sometimes i have issues with with movies and protagonists and stuff um when characters are emotionally withdrawn but um yeah just the way that they interact with all the the other characters too um and augie you know being this guy who won't even tell his children that their mother has died for two weeks again i think that kind of just says all that you need to know but then when you peel back the the curtain and you see schwartzman in like the the frame narrative you also see a different side of the performance right because he's a lot more gregarious maybe is the word for it right when he barges in there to to ed norton's office and does sort of the monologue for him in the office um you know you see a totally different side of him and you it makes you see his performance as augie in a different light because it's you know you, you're you're wondering how he got there what exactly happened what what you know how did he get to this point where he was able to very believably portray this person who seems to be going through some different things or maybe not going through some different things but processing it in a different way than the real version of this actor perhaps would um and obviously we get maybe some hints about that with um you know the reveal that he and edward norton's character maybe had some sort of a, a love affair together um maybe some of it's coming from there and then of course you have the wonderful scene i think with him and margot robbie um where we learn about the deleted scenes so to speak from the the play that kind of unlocks everything for him so there's again there's layers to it because he is doing two different things and i've talked about this before but i always love like the double performances and stuff like that i think that's one of the like hardest things to pull off at least from my perspective uh in acting what do you think that thing is that that unlocks that 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 conversation unlocks for him that is something that i want to revisit because like i can get to you know the idea that the you know the pictures always come out right it's like the repeated line or whatever and that's how that particular scene that margot robbie is reciting ends is with that particular particular line um you know i think the idea there within that right is that where life maybe fails to explain the big questions that we want to answer the picture right the art can reveal the truth can reveal what we are looking for um sometimes uh, the picture always comes out right you can always count on the art to do that but to the to the answer of the more specific question right of what in the art i guess is you know causing him to is is it that unlocks this for him i can't say for sure i mean maybe again maybe it's the relationship with him and midge in the play um maybe like just thinking about that more directly is causing him to reflect on again something from his own life maybe it's this relationship he had with the playwright i don't know that's some of the stuff where i can't quite get there yet but like i do know that i find that scene to be very moving yeah i it, it's definitely something that i also want to really key in on on the second watch because it you know, like I maybe was already sort of alluding to, 
I think all that stuff that's sort of happening in the moment where Jones like can't quite figure out exactly what he's supposed to be feeling or what he's supposed to be doing as Augie. And when all these sort of conversation, like won the conversation with Adrian Brody's like director happens and then he goes out on the balcony. I think that's a, I mean, I do think that's sort of like a critical, if not climactic scene of the whole film. So there's probably more there to unlock Jay from the rest of the ensemble cast. I mean, we've, We've really spent a lot of time so far, I think, talking about a very specific portion of the film. And there's a lot more there, both in terms of cast, but also other angles to consider as well with other characters. You know, there's obviously this whole narrative with the children, you know, with Woodrow and Dina and the other. um, I'm forgetting junior stargazers. I was going to say space cadets. That's not it. (laughs) Junior stargazers going on there and, and. obviously the the alien of it all as as well we haven't even really talked or or really scratched the surface on yet but other parts of the cast or other parts of the narrative that you wanted to key in on here because there's so much we can't talk about at all probably but what's what sticks out to you yeah i guess another thing i'll call out um is you know the the notion of like not feeling like you belong that we get from a lot of the junior stargazers i mean to just like, you know, jump to the center of it where they really hit the nail on the head. There's that one line that's, you know, sometimes I feel like I'd feel more at home. I'm already blank. Was it like outside the earth's atmosphere? I think is what they said. Um, and yeah, you, you know, you really just see them through like, you know, micro moments from, you know, the, from just seeing like what they've been able to build as kids to, you know, they're trying to play that, like that memory game where you, you know, you say a person and then the next person says the first person and the next person. And they're like, you know, like no one wants to play this with me at my school. And, you know, I don't think this is going to work with people like us. There's a, uh, you just, you, to me personally, like, I, I don't know. I just like really felt that I was uh, pretty moved by that. Um, you know, and then you have just to throw in another um, ensemble member that we haven't talked about yet. I don't think Tilda Swinton's doc, Dr. Hickenlooper, you know, who is her own kind of genius. And, you know, she pulls, um, Jake Ryan's Woodrow aside at one point and is, you know, like, you know, all, all of my resources will be available to you, like, even after this, you know, like, kind of like looking out for him. I don't know, like, I, I felt like this is something maybe I need to think on a little bit more, but there definitely was a little bit of like, you know, where do I belong? Not just like within the grander context of everything, especially involving the alien, but also just like, you know, among my own people. And I don't know, I think the film did a really nice job I don't know, showcasing. I don't know. It's just like that feeling of being an outsider. Yeah. I got to say, Jay, this isn't going to mean anything to you, but I was really disappointed that Tilda Swinton did not get on an alien spaceship at the end of the film for the third time in a few years. Uh, The thought, the thought did occur to me, just like the whole scene where the alien appears also is very similar. I feel like to when the alien spaceship appears and the dead don't die, which is a film that Scott is referencing. Yeah. That and, I know there's much debate whether memoria and memoria whether she gets on the alien spaceship. Oh, true! Not. I don't even think about that too. There's That's another one I'm talking spaceship. about. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Third one, man. Third oh, opportunity dismissed. It's fine, Jay. We'll but I mean, she there. is in the dead don't die as well. Wow, that's crazy. No, I was referencing both of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Know, yeah. Right? yeah. Oh, well, she <laughs> definitely, without a doubt, gets on the gets on the alien spaceship and the dead don't die. Unclear if she gets on the spaceship sure, yeah. in memoria um anyway Je- just jeff goldblum being the alien is yeah i wanted to go crazy. there next yeah because yeah, yeah. 
it shows up in the opening credits, like you know, the J, J, Jeff Goldblum as the alien, and then we see that alien like multiple times, and it's just you know the weird little guy that comes out of the ship. And I'm yeah, like, it's animated, is this yeah. some kind of a gag? Right? They're just saying Jeff Goldblum is this like alien? No, but he's right? on the Where- set. He's no, on the I know. That's what play. I'm saying. Yeah, you yeah, see yeah. that. You see that later. But I mean, the yeah. first couple times, because that's much later in the movie. I was like, yeah. "Is this some kind of a gag?" Because if so, it's a great gag. Yeah, it was not a gag. Yeah, Scott. What I mean, yeah. Why don't we talk about that for a second? What What did you think of the whole Junior Stargazer line? Is it something that you connected with? Obviously, we're not. Not that we can't still connect with with stories that involve children, because I think. I mean, frankly, a lot of times I think that that's one of the things on the podcast we talk a lot about is like young adults, teens, those kind of stories that we really connect with in a lot of ways sometimes. But did this story connect with you? And what did you think of, you know, the alien stargazing of it all? Yeah, I mean, look, I think all of it is sort of a the it, the the alien part of it is kind of the the micro of the macro that we've been talking about. Right. Like the these questions that all these all the characters have about life and these big, you know, existential questions are mirrored by the, you know, just way that logic fails to explain to us, you know, what is going on here with the aliens, right? Just in the same way that these characters can't explain this strange scientific phenomenon that has happened, you know, they are also asking these bigger questions. So it's just kind of a a metaphor, I guess, for that, so to speak, is how I look at it. Um, but in terms of like the, the kids and everything, I thought that part of it was very entertaining. Um, I, Jake Ryan, I mean, of course we saw him in eighth grade. He was great in eighth grade, but that kid was, was born to be in a Wes Anderson movie. I mean, like he just is a Wes Anderson, you know, esque protagonist right away. I could see him in a Baumbach film as well, but, um, but yeah, he, he's great. And yeah, I mean, it's a nice sort of. I don't want to say it's a callback necessarily to, to Moonrise Kingdom, but again, you you do have another romance of sorts between these two young characters who are ostracized, right, for being different and, yeah. you know, a way they're scientifically minded. They've had come up with these very creative inventions. Sure. Um, and by the way, one of the best side gags in the movie is Liev Schreiber r- walking around with a death ray that yep. his, his kid has created um, and hold, pointing it at the soldier or whatever or getting in a standoff. But yep. um, but yeah, I thought that part of it really worked. Again, it's not as deep as some of the other stuff we're talking about in the movie. Like, it's much easier, I think, to access what is going on there right again. They're these, you know, outsider yeah. kids and they've found each other in this it, it's a more traditional story too. It's not like it's an original mm-hmm. idea to talk about kids who feel, you know, different than the people, and they find and they come together and they find each other. That they have the there are people like me, right? That that mm-hmm. I have stuff in common with, even at the point Jay was making earlier about the the game that they're playing around, yeah, you know, in the evenings. The name naming some like fame. I don't know, just naming a famous person, right? That's all they're doing. And, it could be and, any yeah. person. And they're like, oh, this could go on forever because we're never going to like screw yeah. it up because that's how genius we are. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and the fact that they're the ones who leaked it out that the alien, that there was an alien or whatever, and that's what the lockdown was about. And then the president he calls the school paper. <laughs> yeah, he calls the school paper, yeah. Is he there? Well, he just he just started drinking. In, what was it that the kid was drinking or whatever that he Ovaltine? Is that what it was? Oh, I think it was Ovaltine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's so fifties. I love it. Yeah, that was that was that was a very funny bit. I mean, there's so many funny bits 
if we're talking yeah if we're talking about the supporting cast for a second yeah go i have to mention jeffrey wright because the man was incredible once again he was incredible in the french dispatch and um probably the maybe the funniest character um general gibson the general the five-star general general griff or whatever his name is and um, first of all his first uh, first appearance where he gives the speech to the uh i was dying during that entire scene like his delivery is just perfect and then you know i mentioned some of the other stuff like maybe maybe the hardest i laughed in the movie there's a couple times i laughed really hard but um when he gets the note from the president after the leak has occurred and they're like oh sir here's a note from the president he takes a look at it for like half a second goes he's furious and just throws it aside like it's such a perfect little joke like throw it's, away it's such joke, a west really, joke but... delivery too yeah, it's like the same it idea behind the uh, willem dafoe and grand budapest Hotel and he's throwing the cat out the window i know that's dark humor too but it's yeah. just like and, just well, very sudden it reminded me expected. it reminded me of the french dispatch where the the mural thing is happening or whatever and adrian brody goes my uncles are sick look at them and like it's just henry winkler and bob balavan standing there with like blank looks on their face like it reminded me of that sort of guy but anyway it was great i thought matt Dillon was hilarious as well you know somebody sure. who has not appeared in west mechanics before but the whole time when he's trying to fix the car or whatever, and then the piece falls off he's like i think this might be a third thing that we've yeah. never heard of which before. one do you have i think you have the latter actually yeah. this might be a third thing we have Maya Hawk as the teacher. You know, sure. I thought all that stuff was a lot of fun. Again, another time I laughed really hard was <laughs> the kids' song. Oh yeah, and we have Jarvis Cocker as one of the cowboys in the band. And yeah, Rupert Jarvis Friend Cocker and Rupert Friend. To, yeah, just showing up to explain everything to them in like his cowboy drawl. I mean, so, so many little gags like that. Steve Carell, right, is like the 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 town tour guide, I guess, if you will. He's the motel he's, owner. Yeah, yeah, or manager. At manager, least. Know manager. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, I don't know if he owns it actually. Yeah, <laughs> the world. You just want to like hang out in that world a little bit longer. I, I mean, sure. And this goes to I think Scott's earlier point about when you have such a star-studded cast. I mean, you didn't even mention Tony Revolori yet. I don't Washed. know if Willem Dafoe has come up. I think maybe. I mean, he came up in the context of mm-hmm. Grand Budapest. But I don't know if he's come up in the context of this. He was in this too. Yeah, I mean. I had this moment where there's so many people in this movie, so you'd be forgiven for not knowing every single person that's in this film. But one of those senior junior stargazers is Sophia Lillis. And I'm like, half of the movie, I'm like, yeah, I think that's <laughs> Sophia Lillis. But I'm like, I don't uh-huh. think she's in that movie. I think I'd know if she's in this movie. I don't think she's in this movie. And at the end, I'm like, no, nope, that was Sophia Lillis. <laughs> all right, cool. <laughs> and there's we just, definitely like, all forgot all Margot Robbie was in this movie too until she showed up, right? Like, What's funny about that is that I reminded myself going in that Margot Robbie is in this movie, and I mm-hmm. and I had by the time she appeared on the screen forgotten that she was supposed to be in the movie, and mm-hmm. then was reminded. So there's just so many people in the film. I mean, there's just so many. I'm just like going down the cast list here. Like, are there any people we failed to mention yet? Hong Chow is in this film. You know, it's a yeah, Academy she plays nominee. Wife the one yeah. yeah, yeah, plays Adrian Brody's wife. Willem Dafoe is an acting teacher briefly in this in this movie. It's just kind of you know. Not that Scott cares as much about this, but I mean, Fisher Stevens showing up again in a Wes Anderson movie. Our boy Hugo. Uh, you know, didn't do any woof woofs this time, but that was disappointing. It was very disappointing that he didn't do that. But there was also kind of a scene in this film where I thought that woof woof would have been appropriate. And totally. Uh, yeah. No, totally. I, I thought it and had to, rep- had, to, had to suppress it. But Oh, I, yeah. I almost leaned over and just said woof woof to you like one stirring or yeah. like, <laughs> I was like biting my tongue. I'm like, don't do it. It's not the yeah. time. Yeah. 
Scott, if you ever watch Succession, there's an iconic line delivery by Fisher Stevens where he goes woof woof to Kendall um, okay. in the final Feel season, it. which is just like I was I told Jay this at the time when I was watching that scene. Um, I like wanted to like get off get off my seat and just like start being like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> um, it was like such an amazing delivery. But anyway, uh, that's enough Succession talk for for this podcast or for this episode of the podcast, probably. There's so there's like so much more to talk about, but I I feel like maybe maybe we just sort of start wrapping things up here. Are there are there lingering thoughts or ideas that you guys want to get out there before we do wrap things up? Scott, you look like you're about to share something. So I do want to mention this one part of the movie, which again it goes in. I think it's fairly straightforward. I guess when we we wrap in what else we're talking we've been talking about, but sure. Um, there's this part of the the movie where the acting class is going on and he's teaching them to fall asleep. Right. And then it basically ends up with this fourth wall breaking where the characters are all saying to the screen over and over again, um, you can't wake up until you fall asleep or something like that. Um, I guess I just wanted to know your guys thoughts on that again. I think it like, it kind of makes sense that, the art right is falling asleep right like you have to experience the art in whatever way um you know that is maybe you're part of it maybe you're witnessing it maybe you're living it who knows but um in order to wake up and be able to answer these questions about life and whatnot that you want to be able to answer that's kind of from a first viewing what i took away from it yeah, I, this is a great point because this is something that when I was sitting there, honestly, I was watching this film with Jay on the first viewing and I kind of thought that, you know, I know Jay's movie sensibilities a little bit. I'm like, I wonder if this is going to like turn Jay off a little bit of this movie. So what did you think of of that sort of more fourth wall breaking meta type kind of stuff maybe coming coming from this film? I wouldn't say it turned me off. I, I think it was one of the more puzzling moments of the movie again maybe that was like part of what contributed to me walking out just being like so like what just happened yeah um but i think upon it's it's frankly it's not very west to be obtuse like that um i think it's it's definitely something that we haven't seen too much of if at all Mm -hmm. from him so i i I was a little surprised to see something like that in the film although i think it makes sense in the context once you get to the end of the movie but yeah Sure. And again, I think upon a second viewing, I think I arrived at the same conclusion as Scott Harvey, and I'm just not going to take any shame in that it you know, took me a second watch to get there. Yeah, well, I think one of the things for me about it is it, sort of similar to what Scott's saying, but, but maybe just a slight rephrasing or a re, re-way to fr- reframing of, of the idea. It's that whether it's art or, or whatever it might be, I think this sort of it, it may be maybe I took it as even broader than that is it's not necessarily that you have to you have to make the art or I think making the art could be an example of doing it. But like the idea is I think you have to, you have to embrace and sort of give into the thing that you're doing. Oh, you know, that can be as broad as life. That can be a, that can be art. That can be whatever in order to get into what you said, to like sort of gain understanding for maybe why you're doing it. Like you have to do the thing to it's understand like, it. You can't understand it and then do it. Yeah. And you have to have like a certain trust that it's going to reveal itself to you as yeah. you, you know, you may not understand the role. You may not understand the play right away, but like eventually you're going to have that moment with Margot Robbie right on the, the balcony and it's going to click. Um, Maybe. And I mean, that that's when it seems to click for, for Schwartzman at least. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm very for, curious. Cause I, I wasn't sure if by the end it had clicked for him 
or maybe there was some sort of acceptance that I wouldn't understand it. I don't know. This is like, this is the rewatch thing. I don't, I don't yeah. feel confident in stating that as, as my view, but it's, it's something that I've definitely been thinking about since I saw the movie. And I don't really feel like I have a, a very firm answer yet. And we get to the end, right? And, you know, I've seen some people referring to it as like one of Wes's most cynical, like downbeat films or something like that, which, yeah, I, I mean, I don't necessarily get there because like I do get, you know, you get to the end, right? They're the last ones that are still like remaining in Asteroid City. And it's like, well, we're kind of back to normal, right? Like nothing has really changed in the end like that we we went through all this but we still have the nuclear tests going off here we still have the police chase going through town or whatnot like everything is still just kind of as strange and distant and scary as it was at the start of the movie um and you know what was it all for i guess so is is one interpretation you could take but again i think all this stuff that the movie is trying to say about art being a pathway is is hopeful right like i think um mm. it does have you know an optimistic tint to it that you know making films creating art of any particular type taking photographs right just like like Schwartz's character is doing it has real value and it can help us to understand ourselves in times when logic science whatever else fails us right like it has a real purpose and value not just as something that can entertain you but as something that can fill in this gap in your life yeah and i think one of the this and that is where this is you know an obvious statement probably but like i think that is also where the self-referential element of the film comes in because i think it's it's wes speaking to the camera and saying sure this is this is why and how i make what i I make and you know, I think there's always when, whenever a filmmaker does that, I think there's always another layer to unpack because then you have to think like, are you able to honestly reflect how you approach and what you do with your films? And I don't think there's any like there's no concrete definitive answer to that question because everything we create is inseparable for how we for, with how we feel. And when you inject yourself into the things that you create, it's sort of hard, I think, to even it becomes even harder, I think, to to sort of really put a, not that we ever would seek an objective lens on something, but to really like understand why and how, like it's, it's both provides insight, but it maybe also creates another layer for the audience. And yeah, I just think that's really interesting. I, I, I'm fascinated by filmmakers who do that. All right. Besides a mention of the road runner bit, which I think we have to call out as one of my favorite, one of my new favorite Wes Anderson gag slash bits that is recurring in the film uh any any last thoughts you want to talk about jay let's bring it home all right favorite scene or moment from asteroid city jay habib oh, i get to go first well i had a list of three just in case and scott already mentioned two uh sure. so the one i'll take is the alien posing with the meteorite before he takes <laughs> it up um sure. yeah i don't know just like I just got a real laugh out of that. Like Jason Forsman, like, you know, lifting the camera up, just like, you know, are you going to kill me if I do this? And the alien yeah. is just like, here you go. Um, I don't know. I thought that was a cute, cheeky little moment. So I'll, I'll call Big that. Big no-ho out. Hank energy from our guy, the alien. All the, all the HBO talk tonight. Scott, favorite uh, yeah. scene moment. 
just a few, a couple other gags that I love. You know, I mentioned the the COVID stuff at the sure. start, which we didn't necessarily get into, which is fine. It's not like a huge part of the movie, but the response to what happens with the alien, you know, very much recalls some of the COVID response. And in particular, again, we have Jeffrey Wright, who's giving like this, you know, various steps about how we're going to respond to it. And like the last step is basically we, we just have to convince them that it never actually happened. And that they sure. should just deny the complete, uh, you know, deny. deny what are Wes Anderson's politics, guys? We going back to our Isle of Dogs discussion. Oh boy. <laughs> and then we have like the tracking cut through like, all the measures that they're taking, like they're, you know, the one kid's in the medical exam. I think that's yeah, maybe Jake Ryan's in there. It's the we Wes Anderson shot, right? You get the somebody being one of the kids being interrogated, basically about the thing. I mean, just some great stuff. And then one other joke which I loved, which was, um, I mean, there were a lot of jokes I love, but one that comes to me now is, uh, you know, Schwartzman has taken the picture of the alien. He's also taken the picture of Scarlett Johansson from across the way or whatever. And she asks if she can, she's like, can I see it or something like that? Did it come and out? Did it come out? Yeah. And he turns around the picture of the alien when she's yeah. very clearly asking for the photo of her. <laughs> and yeah. then he turns around the photo of her and w weirdly them side by side, like she is making a very similar pose to like the one that the alien is making by the asteroid. So it's like, I don't know if y'all even, if y'all noticed that or not, but I was looking at it and I was like, they're kind of making like the same reaction, same pose here. It looks really funny side by side, but I thought that was good. Like the, just the, um, that was one of the big laugh moments in my theater too. Like when he turns around the picture and it's the alien, <laughs> it's not her. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe we are doomed, and maybe the reason we're doomed is because Scarlett Johansson is the alien. It's a tough thing to think about. Maybe that's the key takeaway from the film. But I mean, look, I mean, jo jokes aside about that, like I do think I mean, we didn't really talk about the very, very, very end of the movie, but the fact that she's just gone, you know, that it's just you just have this moment at the end of the film with Jason Schwartzman and and Tom Hanks and his children, and you know, it just sort of like that, Midge and and Dina are gone, you know, sort of walking out of the frame almost. I was a little surprised. I'll be honest. I was surprised that it would just sort of, it sort of just disappeared like that. But anyway, favorite scene or moment for well, me. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I don't know if you missed this, but she did leave her P.O. box number for. For Augie. Augie. Yeah. yeah. A P.O. box number, guys. Oh, Let's come on. They, they, gave, they gave you some semblance of like hope. They didn't just like, she didn't just leave like. You know, there, there's a it's, look. If she was serious, she would not have given a review. Oh box, I'll tell come you that on, much. she's a deeply broken person, just like he is. They're working on it. I don't <laughs> know. A, I, that's I thought, not the I same that, read that I had, but okay. <laughs> I thought that was a not not that they're working on it per se, but I thought that was like a, a moment of like hope there. That's like a you know, okay, I'm not just like gone. You know, like write to me, right? Like I don't know, I. I'm not saying it was like mail, mail me your pictures. Maybe I don't know. Look, I think that's a that's a that's a fair and optimistic take on the situation. But for me, it felt like it felt it felt a little empty. Okay, I mean that's the nice thing about art, right? We can disagree. Yeah, you can be wrong and I can be right. That's fine. <laughs> exactly. Scott, what's you're you know you're the you're the impartial third third judge on this. Who's right? It's I'll probably this one out. <laughs> that's weak that's weak sauce coward yeah what are you doing after my second viewing i will let y'all know how about that the sure. viewer the listeners you don't have to it's you don't have, you can stay you can stay on the sidelines <laughs> switzerland that's fine um okay my favorite scene or moment i'm sure this is one that was on jay's list because scott has mentioned the scene already but it, it is it is during the lockdown 
you know, you have Maya Hawk as the teacher. You have all the kids around the table and they're like going around and asking, oh, like, what, what do you want to share? Like, what do you what have you learned? Like, what's going on? And then the kid, you know, breaks into song, starts dancing. I mean, like, incredible, incredible scene. I know this isn't this isn't a credit song, but like it's up there in like the oeuvre of like credits dances. I feel like that we've talked about on the podcast, whether it's White Noise, whether it's um, I'm blank after Yang last year. Like there is a theme of these sort of song of this sort it's of stuff happening. On- That's good. On par, I mean, and again, Jarvis Cocker shows up, but it's on par sure. with Jarvis Cocker doing the little song Fox. in the middle of Fantastic yeah. Mr. Fox. Also, yeah, yeah, similar vibes, but scaled up to up to up to eleven, I'd say, because it's live action. He gets to, you know, gets to be live basically. And the kid was like smoking a cigarette over oh, with so the uh, Cowboys. One hundred percent, it's so good. Um, I, I loved it, and I'm, you know, it's up there with with great Wes Anderson gags. For me, they're just like sort of coming out of nowhere, almost. Like I, I don't. I mean, I thought there might be some song at some point, just because you see all these cowboys and you have Jarvis. Like you see Jarvis Cocker before the scene in the film. I'm like, well, it's probably gonna do something with a song, right? But I didn't think it was gonna be this big, sort of very uh, eleven performance, which was enjoyable to say the least. All right, guys, out of ten, what are you giving Asteroid City? Jay, your first nine point two. Okay, Scott Harvey. 9.6 it is phenomenal and maybe it'll be a 10 after my rewatch i love just about everything about it yeah for me i'm giving it i'm giving it an 8.5 but I, it's one of those situations where i could see that score going up significantly on the second watch i think for all the reasons that we've talked about on this podcast i feel like there's maybe a little bit a little bit more of a nut still to crack for me on certain elements of the film and i think that will solidify how i feel about it whether it stays there whether it goes up um, I think that score could definitely move, but a great film. I won't put anyone on the spot and say you have to rank this in your Wes Anderson uh, groups, but it sounds like just from those scores that this is in this is a high tier Wes Anderson film for for us. And um, you know, go out and see it. One thing I will say, Scott, because I think this is something that I think you may have brought up a couple of years ago. You really felt like Searchlight had buried the French Dispatch, and maybe took a weird release strategy. I don't think the weird strategy was so weird about it being um, a limited release, going, then building to go wide, because I think that's very typical for Wes Anderson movies. That's something that, that sort of exists and has always happened that way. But I think what's fair to say is, you know, whether it's Asteroid City as a movie just being better than the French Dispatch, getting better reviews, people, better word of mouth, whatever it might be, this Not one was fair. performing. This weekend, this film made the most money of any Wes Anderson film in a weekend ever. It made half as much as the French dispatch made in its entire run a couple years ago, just this past weekend. And is already around 17 million. I think at the box office, obviously that's not like a huge number, but I think when you contextualize it in this thing of like, you know, Wes Anderson movies don't make that much money in a single weekend. It really, they really rely on word of mouth and longer term. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out over the rest of the summer, because obviously there's a lot of stiff competition, but the word of mouth has been good. It'll be interesting to see how this film performs next weekend as it continues to go wider and wider because it's not, I don't even think it's a full wide release yet in all theaters. So it's going to continue to roll up further, hopefully continue to make more money because it's a quality, it's a quality film and I'm definitely expecting to go rewatch it. And I'm curious if maybe other people are feeling the same and going and rewatching it as well. I hope so. Yeah, we shall see. I think that should do it though, for our discussion of asteroid city and as well as uh, episode 241 of some like it's Scott. Jay, as always, thank you for being here to discuss it with us. We'll definitely have you back on the podcast soon, at the very least, for Christopher Nolan's next outing, Oppenheimer. Of course, we have to continue the Nolan Countdown legacy 
for that. In the meantime, where can people find you on Letterboxd since you apparently are incredibly active over there these days? Uh, it's got to be JHibby15, I think. I, I mean, it is. It's JHibby15. I don't know why it's- I second-guessed that. Oh, you got put on the spot. I've never asked you that question before, so you you're quaking in your boots. That, over that's there. okay. Even if it's not, even though I'm like 99.9% sure it is, just find either one of the Scots. They follow me. That's true. That's true. Scott, where can people find you on the socials? At Scarvy Dent, and you can find me at at Shelton two zero one three on Twitter, Letterboxd, serialized. If you want my succession and other HBO drama takes, don't forget to also check out our podcast Patreon at www.patreon.com/slash/mediaplugpods. If you can support us there, we'd appreciate that. But if not, that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, so Jay can juice those last uh, end of end of quarter revenues, and wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd love it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, etc., so that we continue to reach a broader audience. And we really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about Asteroid City. We'll be back next week with a review of the fifth and presumably final Indiana Jones feature, at least for Harrison Ford. That is Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. We hope you'll join us for that next week. But until then, for Jay Habib and Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.